one of the tools that we have to train up our children to love the Lord is a thing called timeout. You know what I'm talking about? Where we, if a kid is having trouble, maybe in the situation we say, you know, it's, it's a timeout. And we maybe send them to their room or a place where they can be by themselves for a period of time to kind of get back into reality a little bit, to kind of, de- kind of uh, decompress uh, all of the above. And there are certain children, and you know this, that when they go into a timeout, they're like, this is the best thing ever. Thank you for sending me into this timeout. And you walk into the room after, you know, 15, 20 minutes, and you see this child sitting there with a big smile on their face. They're probably playing with a toy or doing something in the room, and they have loved every second of your timeout. And you think as a parent, I don't think this is working. This isn't really, I mean, yeah, it brought them back into reality a little bit, but there's, I don't know, I don't think this is really working. But then there's other children, like me, who hate the timeout because we want to be around people. We want to be where all the action is. We're missing out on stuff, and I hate it. And I've hated the timeout, being away from all of you people, watching the TV screen and seeing the back of your heads rather than your faces. That's terrible. And so I am out of timeout. But the thing I've learned is this. I think sometimes we see timeout as punishment. But I think we should learn to see it as an opportunity. And after a while, after I got kind of in a woe is me mode for a time, I thought, you know what, here's an opportunity to just take some time to really think, to really pray, to really talk to God, to read, to do some things that I normally might not have the time to do. And there were a couple days, like today, where the sun was shining, and I went out and I walked along the river there in Gladstone. And I had some business to do, so I called a few people, but it was so nice just to get out and breathe fresh air and to hear the birds and to feel the warmth of the sun on my skin. And so I'm out of my timeout. I am back into the real world, so watch out, man. I got all kinds of energy now. And, uh, you know, so if you see me running down the uh, halls here at church, you'll know what's going on. I'm back. I just want to say thanks to a few people. Um, Phil, who preached for me last Sunday, um, did a beautiful job of setting up this series that we're going to be going into on the armor of God and what that means in our life. And I also want to say thanks to Jeff Galt. Jeff, thank you for your work and your ministry and using your shape to do what you love doing, teaching, and to do it for kids. And I love that magnifying glass that Jeff brought out. I need one of those. I can see you. I can see you out there. And he did such a fantastic job. So Jeff, thank you for your work. And Fletcher, thank you for being the, the model, I guess, of the spiritual armor, right? I think you did that in my stead. Jeff had asked me to do it, and I said, sorry, Jeff, I can't be there that particular Sunday, last Sunday. So uh, Fletcher, thanks for standing in for me. I appreciate that very much. You know, there's two realities that we saw last week that Phil talked about. The first one is we are, and here's a no-brainer, right? We're in a battle. We're in a battle. From the moment we say yes to Jesus' invitation in our life, to the moment that we're going to be with him in the future, guess what? Everything in between that point and the future point is a battle. 
There's a conflict going on. We might not see it, we might not even realize it at time, but it is definitely there and it's a part of our spiritual experience and that's why Paul ends this great book of Ephesians with this important instruction to be aware of the spiritual battle that we're gonna be facing. The Christian life is not a cakewalk, right? It is a battle walk and that is the truth. Our enemy is real but not seen. It's not flesh and blood, this enemy that we face. In fact, there are three enemies that we face. Phil mentioned these last week. There is satanic and spiritual forces. Verse 12 of this chapter speak to that. There are the world and the culture around us, the worldly system that wants to pull us in that is an enemy of ours. And then, the one that often gets neglected but that is critical to understand, there's our own flesh. Sometimes our worst enemy is us and our flesh, that old nature that wants to hang around and pull us in and take us down. So there's those three enemies that we face, but here's the reality of the gospel. Here is the victory that we have. Number one, we have victory over the old nature because in Christ we have a new nature. We have power to say no to those temptations that creep up inside our hearts. We have a new government, we have a new culture in Christ. So we don't have to follow the culture of this world and do what it wants us to do and be conformed to it. And we have a new sovereign ruler in our life. We don't have to follow Satan and his demons and all of the spiritual forces out there. We have a Lord and a Savior, Jesus Christ. We have victory over all these things. I want to start this morning by reading verse 10 and 11 in Ephesians 6. And, and um, last week, Phil went over this a little bit, but there's two commands that were given here in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. There's two commands there in those verses. The first one is, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The word there, the sense there is passive. It's something that is done for us. In fact, you could retranslate it a little bit and say, let yourself be strengthened by the Lord. It's something that is done to us. It's not necessarily something that we do in our own power. It is in the present tense. We need to be doing this continually. It's not something that's once for all. We can be strong one day and say no to temptation, and you know this is true, and be proud of ourselves, and the very next day, right, same temptation or maybe something a little bit different that gets thrown our way, guess what? Boom. We fall on our face, flat on our face. Why? Because this is an ongoing struggle. It's present. We need to be aware of that. It's not a once for all. And then finally, it's a positional. We're to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verse, chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, going back, and I'm just going to read these verses to you. This is Paul's prayer in chapter 1 at the end of it. And here's what he says. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead 
seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Paul says we have in us the power, the strength, the might. Those same words are you, that were used in chapter one are used right here that God has given to each one of us, that are available to us. The same power that brought Jesus back to life from the grave, that raised him and exalted him to the right hand of God in the heavenlies, far above any kind of power. That's the kind of power that we have available. We're to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So it is a positional truth. We are, that's the first command. Uh, Philippians 4.13, by the way, this is just one of those pet peeves. We all have them, right? Great verse. A lot of people kind of take this verse on as their theme verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? We'd all agree with that. I think what happens sometimes with that verse is all the emphasis goes to the first part of the verse. I can do all things, period. I'll even see it on t-shirts and things like that. And they'll forget about part two and the more important part of the verse, which is through, because of, in Christ, who gives me all of the strength that I can do all things through, right? And so when we think about this, it's not about me. It's not about me fighting this battle at all. It's about doing it in the power of that I have in Jesus Christ. That's the story of Ephesians. It's been the story of this whole book as we've gone through. The second command, how are we to do this? Put on the full armor, that's how. Put on the full armor of God, it says. Put on, it's a command. We are to take up, we're to, to assume it. We have responsibility in this. God has given us the armor, but what good is armor if it's just sitting on the floor in a pile? None. So our responsibility in this is, look, put it on. It's there. It's been provided for you. But you have a part in this. You play a part in this too. And you need to be aware of that. This whole idea, it's, it's a full armor. It's a panoplia. There's the Greek word for from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And we're going to see that as we go through the armor. We are fully covered by this armor it's given to us by God there's seven pieces of armor that we're going to study in the series starting today going for six more weeks after today and they are this the belt of truth that's today and we're going to see the breastplate of righteousness the shoes or the feet fitted with the gospel of peace shield of faith helmet of salvation sword of the spirit and then prayer Seven things that have been given to us. The full, this is the full armor. We are equipped to fight the battle by God himself. We have everything we need. When properly worn, and here's what I want you to understand and see. When properly worn, the armor God provides will protect us. That's the message of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, God has equipped us by giving us the armor. Our job here at CBC as leaders is to equip you to put it on and to equip you in the armor. What is the armor? How do I put it on? How do I live as a soldier of Jesus Christ? 
That's our job, to equip you to do that, and that's what we will desire to do in the weeks ahead, Phil and I together on this. Where did Paul get this whole idea from about armor? Where did it come from? Well, theologians have kind of speculated. The first one that comes to mind, obviously, is this is a prison epistle. He was literally chained to a Roman soldier in the prison that he was at while he was writing the book of Ephesians. Now, most likely the soldier would not have had the full gear on (laughs) that we read about. It would have been very clumsy, to say the least. But there was a Roman soldier at his side. He was literally chained to this person for a long period of time. And throughout his ministry, as Paul traveled the Roman world, he would have seen Roman soldiers. And so obviously the imagery there would have been very real to him. And so he's probably drawing on that a little bit. But remember, Paul was also a Pharisee before he came to know Christ. Paul knew his Old Testament better than I do, for sure. He studied it from the moment he was young all the way through. He knew it. He memorized huge sections of the Old Testament. And he knew that in the Old Testament, scattered throughout many of the books there, there's this picture of God. There's this picture of God being a warrior and his Messiah putting on armor for us to deliver us. He understood that this armor ultimately was from God. And that's where we get the armor from. And we're going to see that as we go through this series of armor. It isn't just imaginary stuff. It's, it's God has it. God gives it to us. It's there in him, in his person. In fact, today with the belt of truth, Isaiah speaks to this. He speaks about the Messiah having a belt. Here it is in Isaiah 11.5. Here's what it says. Again, this is a passage that's speaking about the Messiah. The Messiah. It says, righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. He has a belt that he wears. It's righteousness, it's faithfulness that's around his belt. And so this idea, this imagery would have been there in the Old Testament, and he would have known this, and he's drawing on this for the the believers in, in Ephesus. But I think there's something even more that Paul wants us to hear And I want you to catch this today because really the theme of Ephesians is being in Christ. Paul wants us to know that when we talk about putting on the armor, we're talking about putting on Jesus Christ. We're talking about putting on him. Where do I get that from? From Paul. Romans chapter 13 verses 12 to 14. Look what he says in the book of Romans. It says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Oh, oh, that's good to hear, isn't it? So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, here's what I want you to do, Paul says, I want you to clothe yourselves With the Lord Jesus Christ, put on Christ. That's what I want you to do every day, every day. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. How do we battle the struggles? 
in reality, we need him. We need Jesus Christ in our life. It's the armor of light there that he speaks of. The armor is Jesus Christ himself, and we're going to see he is the truth. We're going to see that today. He is righteousness. He is the gospel of peace. He is the object of our faith. He is salvation. He is the word of God with a capital W, the incarnate word who came and dwelt amongst us. He is the object of our prayer. He is the one that we pray to. So throughout all of this armor, we're going to see that it's, it's Christ that we're looking at all the way through. So we put on this armor. Why do we put on armor? Well, it says in 11b to verse 13, here's what it says. Here's why. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Our whole objective in putting on this wonderful armor is what? to stand. He says it four times in these four verses, so I think he's trying to get this idea across. Sit, walk, stand. That's the story of the book of Ephesians. Know who you are in Christ. Walk worthy of your calling in Christ. Live like it in your daily life, in your families, in, at work, places like that. And then stand. That word is a military term. It literally means to hold on to one's ground. You have it. You have your position in Christ. Stand there. Guard it. That's what this armor is for. That's the whole point of this. The pieces of this armor are mostly defensive in nature. You could argue the sword's there. That can be an offensive weapon. But it also can be used defensively but mostly they're defensive in nature. We're not to run after the devil. We're not to grain, try to claim new territory for Jesus. We're to stand in the territory and the ground that he's already given us in Christ. That's spiritual warfare, according to scripture. It's not chasing around demons, as some people maybe project out there, but it's submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's James chapter 4. Submit to your commander-in-chief, God. Then resist the devil. Don't run after him. Resist him. And guess what? He will run from you. Not because you're scary. Not because you're powerful, right? Because he sees in you Jesus Christ. That's why he's hightailing it away from you. But resist, that's the word there. The battle has been won for us by Christ, but the daily skirmishes continue because our enemy is still alive. The reality of battle is still there. So there's going to be the struggles that are still a part of our life. We are not victims in the battle. We are victors in Christ. Did you hear that? We are not victims, we are victors. 
in Jesus Christ. Paul says that in Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. Why? Because I'm such a great person? No. Because I am in Christ. We've already, we've, the battle's been won for us. I ran into a gentleman in the store the other day, and he said to me, and we started talking for a brief time, and he said something to me that I've heard from a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters through the years. He said things like, you know, I just don't feel like I can win this battle. And he was talking about addictions in his life, and they're tough. When you talk about addictions in your life, you're talking about a tough battle. But he says, you know, I just don't feel like I have the power to win. And he said, you know, the other thing that really I struggle with, to be honest, as a Christian, is I really don't feel like I'm forgiven. I don't feel like God can forgive me for the things that I do and I continue to do. And I just said to him, I said, you know, I think it's important to understand who you are in Christ. You have victory there. You're not a victim to this. You're not. You are a victor in Jesus Christ. By saying that you are a victim, you're saying that is my identity. I am an addict. I am an abused person. I am, you put a title on it, whatever it might be, but that is, you've identified yourself as that and you've taken on that identity. You've said basically in essence, I have no responsibility in this and I have no ability to get out of this. There's no hope. There's no possibility of change here. And what you're saying in that is everything the gospel has told you is true. You're going the exact opposite of what is true. Because in Christ, our identity is not in our sin. It's not in our failures. It's in him. We are identified as saints. We are called out ones. We are holy in Jesus Christ. That is our identity. We have responsibility we can do something about it. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can do something about it. We're not just a victim to this. And there's hope. Things can change. God's forgiveness is real. I can gain victory over whatever it is that's causing the problems in my life. There's hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please know that we are not victims as believers, we are victors in this battle. There's two considerations when we talk about the armor. The armor described here in Ephesians 6 covered the f mostly the front of the individual. Again, the idea there is you are facing your enemy. You're standing. You have the ground. You're standing in a battle, and the enemy's out here. I'm facing my battle. The idea there is you do not want to turn and run from your enemy because your backside is now exposed. You are in a bad position here. The armor is on your front. So you are to face your enemy. And in Christ, with the armor that he's given us, we can face any enemy that, that comes up against us as believers. I was teaching one time at a chapel at North Clackamas Christian School and I did a little lesson on the armor here in Ephesians 6. And so after my teaching time was over, one of my friends, one of the teachers there at NCC, John Scott was his name, he was a history teacher there for many years, 
he came up to me and said, can I have a question for you? You talked about the armor only being in the front and making standing, not running, not retreating. He said, what about the verse in Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts? And I'm like, thanks a lot, John. You just blew my whole... So I said, you know, that's a great question because the instruction there for this young man, Timothy, from his older mentor, Paul, was, you know what? You find yourself in a situation with youthful lust, get out of there, run. And John said, you know, the example that comes to my mind is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right? You know, we had, uh, we had uh, what's her name? Uh, the, Potiphar. Potiphar. Yeah, Potiphar's wife came on to him, basically. So what did he do? Did he stand there, think about it, ponder the moment? No, he ran so much that the tunic, she's standing with his tunic in her hands, right? He fleed. He got out of there. He fled. Youthful us. And so I think that's true, but I think what it's talking about there is, is when, you're in a, when you find yourself in those situations and putting yourself in situations where you know it's going to be a problem, don't do it. Don't put yourself in those things. Be, co- be cognizant of places that are going to be difficult for you and get out of there. Flee. But for the most part, we're standing. We're facing our enemy by God's power. Secondly, I want to say this. This is a call. We are called to a unified, mutual defense. What do I mean by that? Yes, we're going to be talking about armor in an individual sense. I need to put on these pieces of armor as a person, Ken Drake. But I want to put it in terms of us. As a community of believers, as Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ together, let's put on the armor of God collectively. Let's do this together because we need each other in this battle. We can't leave that part out, and we're going to see that with these pieces of armor, some of them more than others, but it needs to be a collective effort here because one of the things that Satan loves to do with all of us is this, divide and conquer, right? I'm going to pull that Christian away from the community of believers. And guess what? They're not going to be as strong because they don't have that support system around them, right? How many times have you found yourself in a situation where maybe you've just kind of wandered away a little bit? You've gotten out there on your own. And all of a sudden, that's where you're attacked. And that's where you're most vulnerable. And Satan knows that. So this idea of being collectively, let's put on this armor together collectively. So let's start with the belt of truth, the first one. And there's a picture here of what maybe, this is a rendering of what this belt of truth or the belt of armor might have looked like in Roman times to give you just kind of a picture. And so my question today, one of my questions is why the belt? That's an interesting place to start, isn't it? Why the belt? What's the big deal about a belt of all things, right? So let me answer that in three ways. Number one, the belt prepared one for battle. Instead of putting it on last, when I got up this morning, you know, and this is kind of the way that I dress normally, it's either the last or the next to last thing that I put on to get dressed, right? I don't put on my belt first. Let's just put it that way. So I think of this as kind of a weird thing. But when you're armoring up, when you're preparing for battle, 
it is the first thing that would be put on to prepare for battle. And so Paul is giving us the armor in the order of how they would have been put on by a centurion or a soldier in Roman times, starting with the belt. Putting on the belt said, I'm preparing for battle. Taking off the belt means I'm off duty. Means that basically this whole idea is I'm putting down one's guard. We use that, that phrase. But when you took off the belt, you were off duty. You were not in battle anymore. And that's what it's really signifying. The 1 Peter 1.13 tells us, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I like the King James rendering of that verse better because here's what the King James Version says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your belt cinched firmly of your mind. This is not about back support. This is about mind support here. Gird your minds, because that is where Satan attacks us, in our thoughts, in our thinking. That's what's going on. We need to prepare our minds for the battle, according to 1 Peter 1.13. So, we're preparing for battle by putting on our belt, but secondly, the belt held everything together. So, a Roman soldier, the way they would be dressed would be, they would have shorts on, or what we would consider most likely like a kilt, kind of heavy-duty kilt on, and then over that they would have some undergarments, and then over top of that they would have a tunic. A tunic was simply a piece of material with a hole for the head and two for the arms, and it would extend from the shoulders on down to their feet. Loose-fitting clothing that was comfortable but very loose and flowing all over the place. I have a memory of a time where one of the things I used to love to use youth pastor is spring break. Take the youth to the beach. So we'd take one day of spring break week, load up the old CBC bus, head to the beach, spring break. Now, as you guys know, spring break in Oregon is not always sunny and warm and wonderful. Is that fair to say? So literally this particular week, I remember this very clearly, we're heading over the coast range and there's that rest area there in the middle of the hills. You know where it's at, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, right? There's the rest area, so we stopped. We get out, we're playing in the snow in the rest area in the coast range and I'm thinking, oh boy, this is gonna be a miserable day and it was coming down pretty hard. So then we come down out of the coast range to, you know, we were at Cannon Beach. So we come down to Cannon Beach and it is not just raining, but it is like coming sideways with a wind force, pelting people. So nobody on the bus, including myself, Pam, I don't know if you were there that particular day. This is probably before your, your time with me, but I don't think anybody's really prepared for this. So what did we do? We went to the little tiny grocery store in the middle of Cannon Beach. You know where it's at, right on the main drag there? There's this little piggly wiggly store or something. We went in there and we just bought this box of glad garbage bags. And literally, we didn't have anything. We didn't have a knife, we didn't have anything. So we just literally tore a hole for the head and two holes out the sides for arms. And all 40 people, youth and adults, walking through Cannon Beach with glad garbage bags <laughs> on them. So here's this weird scene. 
all these people walking around Cannon Beach, and then there's 40 people that have glad garbage bags. We kind of stood out a little bit that day, did we not? And I'll never forget, we walked into Piggly, is it Pig's, Pig and Pancake? Is that the place? I don't know. So we went into Pig and Pancake for lunch, and so there were four of us adults. I don't know why the adults all went out and the kids are roaming free, but anyway. We had lunch, and we go into Pig and Pancake, and the lady to seat us, she just kind of looked at us like, what's, what, what's, and we told her the story. You know, we just weren't prepared. We had to get the glad garbage bags out. But they were our tunics for a day, right? And they worked in that setting. You know, they kept us relatively dry, not completely, obviously, but they worked. But in those days, this tunic would be flowing freely. And the idea here is with the belt, the tunic that went all the way down to your feet would have to be taken up and tucked into your belt. So in battle, it's hand-to-hand combat. You need freedom of movement. You don't want to be tripping over this free-flowing robe, this tunic. So it would be taken up and tucked in to this belt to free you up to move to get about so you wouldn't be tripping. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, it speaks of the Passover and God's instruction to Moses and then to the people. I want you to prepare to get out of town, but listen to what he says here in Exodus 12. This is how you are to eat your Passover meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt. Hmm, interesting. Your sandals on your feet. We're gonna talk about the sandals of the armor A little bit later, it would have been probably a little more than sandals, right? But get your shoes on. Get ready. You're heading out tonight. Your staff in your hand, your walking stick. Because why? Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I want you to eat your meal, but I want you to tuck this tunic into your belt to be prepared to go. Everything needs to be tucked in. The belt holds everything together. The last thing you want are loose ends in this battle. One of the books that I'm reading as I go through this is a book by Stu Weber. Many of you know Stu. He was the founder of um, Good Shepherd Church out in Boring. Still on staff, I believe, out there, but he writes this about loose ends. He says, the parallels to spiritual warfare are fairly obvious. If you're gonna be an effective Christian engaged in the spiritual warfare of everyday life, you must gather up the loose ends of your life, cinch your life securely with the belt of truth. All the elements of your life must be tucked into the securing qualities of the belt. What kinds of loose ends might we be talking about here? Things like your personality, decisions, habits, work ethic, marriage, spending patterns, morals, parenting skills, giving amounts, sexual appetites, choices, actions, they must all be tied together by and subject to God's truth. Everything in your life must be subject to and held together by truth. That's why the belt, it holds it together. Finally, the belt is foundational. When the belt is in place, a soldier can then put on the rest of his armor. The shield, this breastplate, by the way, that was funny last week with Jeff and Fletcher, the apron, right? This was their breastplate of righteousness. It's not an apron, okay, but this breastplate would have rested upon top of the belt. It would have held the breastplate in place. The belt also contained all of the equipment that the soldier would need in the battle, maybe a rope, 
maybe food rations, things like that, would all be a part of the belt so that they were available to them. But maybe most importantly, there was on the belt this scabbard. It's a little leather thing that would hold the sword in place. While you're doing battle, the last thing that you want to happen is for you to lose the sword, right? You need a place for it to be secure, and it's put secure in the belt of truth. We need to have the Word of God, the truth of God, right at our side, secure. I don't want to lose it in the middle of battle. How do I do that? Well, memorize. Get it in your heart. That's how I have the Word of God close, right here by my side. So the belt plays a huge role in making sure I have what I need right here. It's very foundational to my life. What about this truth? Why is truth such a big deal? Why does Paul start with truth? All those other elements are huge. Righteousness, faith, salvation. But why truth first and foremost in his list here? Because the devil's primary weapon, and we know this, is lies, falsehood, deceit. That is his number one weapon in our life. The Garden of Eden, it started there. His tactic was simply to question God's word and to question God's character with Eve. And it worked. It worked, didn't it? He got her to doubt what God had told her was true. That's where he's going to go. He's going to hit truth first. When I showed that picture of the belt, one of the things you know is it had leather straps going down in front. Now, the obvious thing there is, specifically for a man, is protection of the lower parts of your body in warfare situations. And just kind of in a technical sense, Satan's greatest joy in spreading lies is he loves to hit us below the belt. That's the reality of what Satan wants to do with us, and that's why truth and this belt and the protection that we have in knowing God's word and the truth of God is so important because he loves to hit us low, below that belt line. Truth is important to us individually. Truth is important to us collectively as a church. Why? Number one, we as a church are God's divinely ordained means of manifesting it. God has given us the task as his church to spread the truth into the world. Ephesians 3, verse 10, we saw this earlier in the book of Ephesians. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God wants to use us to spread truth. If we lose sight of what is true, what good are we as the church of God. There's a problem there, isn't it? We need to hold on to what is true. Truth is the basis for unity. We are united around the truth. We can't let opinions and different perspectives divide us. We have them. I have my opinion. You have your opinion, and that is totally fine. That is good. We're not all the same. We all have different experiences, and we all have different perspectives, but we can't allow that to be the thing that divides us. We need to allow the truth to be the thing that unites us together. The kind of worship that God desires requires truth. Jesus said in John 4, 
to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't really worship God and do it untruthfully. It needs to be based upon the truth of who God is, the truth of what God has done for us, the truth of God's word. If it isn't based on that, what, what good is it? Worship is not just the quality of music. It's not just an emotional experience. It's not just a social gathering, although it involves all those wonderful things. Worship is the response of our whole life. Focus on the truth, Jesus Christ, and the word of God. That's what worship is. That's why it's so important. The word truth, the Greek word there, aletheia, is something laid out, something laid tangibly and clearly before our eyes. God isn't in his truth to us. He hasn't tried to trick us in any manner. He's laid it out clearly for us, right before us, saying, I want you to know what's true. I want you to come into a relationship with truth. In our world today, there's four different ways you can come to know truth. A lot of people have a different approach to it. Science and the natural world. There's the only way to know truth is through science. Science is great. Nothing wrong with science. But is is it the ultimate determiner of truth? The other way that people can come to know truth is through experience and emotions. How I feel. What I've experienced. My truth. That falls short in so many different ways. The other way is what works. Pragmatic view. Well, that works, so that must be true. Well, that's common sense is good, but really the way that we come to know truth is through revelation. It's revealed to us clearly. It's laid out before us. That's what the word truth there literally means. I want to ask you a question. Do you feel like truth has left the building in our culture today? Do you feel that way? I think Isaiah felt that way, and I want to read this passage from Isaiah and just listen to what he says and, and go, wow, is he living in 2021? Here's what he says. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Ooh, does that sound familiar? The Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. We should desire justice. God does. It should be part of the gospel. It is part of the gospel. We should be leading the way in this. However, with that said, I think the means that the world is going about this whole justice thing is wrong. It's off base. Their goal is good, but the motive and the means are not tied into truth, they're not tied into righteousness, they're not tied into the things of God, they're not tied into the gospel, and that's the problem. It's a good goal. We want justice. We should. But how do you go about that? And that is the problem. So what has replaced truth in our culture today? If you want to shoot up that table, oh boy, I don't know if you can read, I'll read this for you. What has replaced truth today is this, and I got this from an article called The End of Absolutes. 
America's New Moral Code, and it comes from the Barna Group. Many of you are familiar with them. They do a lot of research. They're a Christian-based, faith-based organization, and they go out there and they do a lot of research on what people think about things. This was done in August of 2015, so relatively recent, but here it is. It says this, Americans are both concerned about the nation's moral condition and confused about morality itself. As nominally Christian moral norms are discarded, what, if anything, is taking their place in our culture today? Barna's research reveals the degree to which America's pledge allegiance to the morality of self-fulfillment. That's it. That's what has replaced truth in our culture. This is a new moral code. That is, David Kinneman, President of Barna argues, has all but replaced Christianity as the cult- culture's moral norm. And here are the things on this chart. And if you can see them, here's what I want you to, to see in this. Number one is how little difference there is between what the world says is true and what practicing Christians say is true. Alarmingly small difference between the two. So let me start with these things. The first one is the best way to find yourself is by looking where? Within yourself, right? The world at large, 91%. Significant, right? What about practicing, not just people that say, I'm a Christian, but I never go. No, these are people that go to church and are part of a regular church body. 76, alarmingly high. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89, way up there, the world at large. Christians, 76, three quarters. Think about that one. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire the most. That's, that's the goal of life, people. 86% of the world is saying, go in that direction. As Christians, practicing Christ, 72, wow. The highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? 84% of the world, 67 Christians. Way too high. People can believe whatever they want as long as their beliefs don't affect society. Believe what you want don't, as long as it doesn't cause any harm to anybody. Right? It, doesn't, it isn't important what you believe. 79% of the world says that. 61% professing Christians believe that. Wow, what's going on? Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. The world buys that at 69%. This is the one thing that Christians are below the 50% mark, but still, in my opinion, too high. 40%. Wow, shocking. So what does that tell us? It tells us we have work to do in our churches of educating equipping people about what truth is, helping them see truth. How do you put on this belt? Well, the first way to put on the belt is to trust in him who is the truth, Jesus Christ. I am the way, Phil, in your prayer. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way to God. Be in relationship. Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, in his book in Ephesians, Paul's already told us this. That, however, is not the way of life you learn, Paul says. He's been speaking about all those dark things. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth, that is where? In yourself? 
in culture? No, it's in Christ. He is truth. Truth comes out of Jesus Christ. We abide in him. He abides in us. Phil spoke on that last week, John 15. We're indwelt by Christ, who is truth. We accept the truth in his word. We live lives that are truthful. It comes out in our words. It comes out in the way we live. It comes out in our convictions, in our character. Truth becomes who we are, but we, it starts with him and a relationship with him. Then we protect our mind against things that are not true. This is a battle for our minds and our thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Paul says we demolish arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's the battlefield. It's right here in our minds. We allow Christ to speak truth into our lives, to get power over that. And we don't depend on others to tell us what is true. Truth by osmosis is a lie. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to hang around Christian people, I'm going to send my Christian Christian school, I'm going to sing Christian songs, listen to Christian radio, and and that's all good. But here's the reality. Truth doesn't happen by osmosis, by just being around Christian truth. You need to be in the truth. You need to take in God's word. It's not about being fed by the church. It's about me feeding myself and my family that God has given me responsibility for. I need to be in the word seven days a week, not just an hour once a week. And please, osmosis, truth, they don't go together. It's a deliberate, very deliberate thing. The other day, I just want to end with this question for y'all. Who or what? Who or what has the final say in my life? My feelings? I'm just kind of going by what I feel. Another person? Well, my parents told me, or my pastor told me, or fill in the blank there. Another person, so I'm just going to do it. Is it my culture? Oh, boy, I hope not. I pray not that it's the culture that's leading you along, whatever the world seems is good, that I'm just going to blindly accept. Is it comfort? I think this speaks to us as Christians today more than any other. Is it the easiest way out? I'm just doing it because I'm just going to avoid all the struggle of it all. That's something to think about. I had to ask myself that question a little bit. The reality of the belt of truth is the idea we need to fasten it securely around our waist. And we need to give Jesus Christ the final say in our lives. The other day I was at a meeting of pastors. We were just praying. We meet weekly, group of pastors from Clackamas County. And I was sitting next to this young man. He was a youth pastor out at Sunnyside Foursquare Church on Sunnyside Road. And that's where we were meeting. And so I'm sitting next to him. He had a hat on. And all I could see sitting next to him was Y2K. And I thought, that's weird. That's 20 years ago, man. That's like, that's like ancient history. I'm like, so I, after the prayer time was over, I, I go, um, can I, what's on your hat, Y2K? And, and he turned and faced me, and on the front of his hat, he simply had this, yield to the king, Y2K. And I said, boom, get me one of those. So I ordered one. Him and his wife had put out this design on T-shirts and hats, and I said, I gotta have one of those because I'm gonna wear it 
I want to engage people in some conversations. Here's the reality of cinching up this belt of truth. We need to yield to the king. That's it. He's the one that we're responsible to listen to. Amen?